Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this year's IPS Nadan Lecture Series by Professor Chan Heng Chi, our seventh SR Nadan Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Prof Chan will be giving her third and last lecture, which is Singapore in the Time of Flux, Optimism from the Jaws of Gloom. Following her lecture, Prof Chan will take questions from our Facebook comments. The Q&A session will be chaired by Mr. Bilahari Kausikan, Chairman of the Middle East Institute, National University of Singapore. IPS Director Janadas Devan will be giving the closing remarks at the end of the lecture. Here are some housekeeping rules at the start of our event. The lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded on the IPS website and Facebook page later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time through our Facebook page. We will try our best to answer as many as we can. We also would like to hear your view on the event. There will be a link on our Facebook page which you can click to submit your feedback. May I now invite Professor Chan to give her lecture. Mr. Janadas Devon, Mr. Bilahari Kausikan, ladies and gentlemen. Now, before I begin my last lecture, I would like to say a few words of thank you. I want to say a big and warm thank you to Rachel Howe from IPS. I couldn't have asked for a more resourceful, responsive, and intelligent research assistant. She has been responsible for the charts and the graphics, and she acts as my sounding board. I would also like to thank IPS and Liang Kaixin and her team for the tremendous support throughout the preparations. The mistakes and disputable conclusions are all mine. Now, GE 2020 is over. The PAP government has been ret returned to office with 61.2% of the vote and 83 of the 93 seats. The Workers' Party now holds two GRCs, of, uh, two GRCs and an SMC, 10 seats in all, and for the first time since independence, Singapore has a leader of the opposition in parliament. This is a historic watershed. The election demonstrated that the electorate chose safety, security, and solutions by returning the incumbent PAP, but at the same time, wanted to strengthen opposition voices and checks and balances in the legislature. Now, there have been so many intelligent, sharp analysis in social media post-election that I do not want to go over the same ground. Let me make a few observations about trends which point to what sort of politics we will have in the future. The electoral result was a vote on the last five years, the last five months, and the last nine days. Let me explain the last five years. Voters were looking at PAP predominance or the supermajority and how governance and parliamentary debate had been conducted. They did not approve of the way the elected president was introduced and other policies as well, like POFMA. The last five months, the vote was also on how the COVID pandemic was handled with the lack of clarity and micromanaging of rules and protocols for businesses. Now, there were also growing fears and anxiety about jobs. And in the last nine days of the campaign, it was about messaging, communicating, 
and the online presence and savviness of the parties. Which brings me to an important fact and trend in our society. We talk a great deal about the youth vote and younger vote, voters. Let me show you our demographic bulge represented in figure one. What has not been highlighted in the commentaries is that GE 2020 occurs at a time when Singapore is at its youth peak. The biggest youth bulge is aged between 25 to 35. And if you include those in the age group 20 to 24, it is a huge group. The Workers' Party understood this and chose youthful candidates and issues for the Zoomer generation who prefer personal narratives and I feel your pain connectivity, approachability and authenticity. This online digital politics is now the new retail politics, up close and personal. Clearly, this age group bought the opposition message of the need for diverse voices in parliament and the need for checks and balances. The question is, as this demographic group grows older, will their values and issues change? It has been conventional wisdom that as people get older, they become more conservative. But a Pew Research report suggests American millennials and Gen Xers are different from boomers and the silent older generation. They buck the trend of changing. And on many issues, they have a distinct and increasingly liberal outlook. So I expect our millennials will continue to support diverse voices and an opposition in parliament as a good thing, even as they age. They will have specific personal concerns too in different phases of their lives. The incumbent party will have to understand this group better to win back their vote. During the campaign and in the post-GE analysis, <clears throat> the word that comes up in most conversations is fair. There is a strong desire to see the incumbents play politics more fairly when dealing with the opposition. <clears throat> I have been thinking about the evolving political culture of Singapore for some time now. As I listen to panelists and read the online posts, it is evident that a new political culture is emerging. On the one hand is a culture of government, which emphasizes strong government, effectiveness, a legalistic culture, delivery of public goods and services, and a better life for the people. Critics have characterized the PAP political style as paternalistic. On the other hand, many Singaporeans invoke democracy and want to see Singapore evolve, evolve into a full-fledged democracy. Yet political commentators have asked why the PAP is asking for a strong mandate and why they are not more magnanimous in the treatment of opponents. They would like to see rules applied to all political participants fairly, that gerrymandering be restrained. It strikes me that even as we yearn for democratic competition, competitive politics, we are asking 
for a kinder and gentler politics. We seem to be repulsed by the competitive, mean politics of some Western democracies. Educated and younger Singaporeans do not want to see political overkill when the government deals with political opponents. This may be the result of the decades-long predominance of the ruling party in parliament and in government, that as politics matures and evolves, <clears throat> these are the values and norms that have come to be shared by the society and community. This is who we are. Consequently, the political tools in the toolbox that worked in the past may not be acceptable or as effective going forward. Prime Minister Lee was seen by many as gracious and honest in his reaction to the election results. And his reaching out to the Workers' Party leader, Pritam Singh, was applauded. Post-election, <clears throat> the PAP as party, <clears throat> I'm really sorry. Post-election, the PAP as party would seek to understand the messages voters were sending in the results. And as Minister Shanmugam said, it requires a lot of soul-searching and reflection. I believe we will see changes. The tone post-election was a unifying one. Now, let me use the rest of my time to share with you how I see Singapore responding to the forces of change around us and challenges that are tumultuous and transformational, where political, economic, and international structures are unraveling and strategic choices to be made. <clears throat> the disruption for Singapore and the COVID-19 pandemic. Singapore was initially held up as a gold standard on how to handle the pandemic by WHO and the US media, but soon we became a cautionary warning. Now that we are into the fifth month of the COVID pandemic, what have we learned about Singapore and about our resilience to deal with the crisis? In the GE, some opposition parties made the handling of the pandemic an issue. Some mistakes were made. Singapore was not and is not the only country that is trying to get ahead of the crisis and had to change its plans as we learned more about the virus. The pandemic has highlighted three important truths. First truth, we have to come to grips with the issue of foreign workers or the migrant workers in Singapore. They are a permanent transient presence in Singapore. And firstly, that large numbers and dense living will always pose risks during pandemics. Our economic growth has been dependent on raising productivity through manpower rather than productivity through the use of technology. The question is, to what extent and how fast can we shift the paradigm? Employers will argue, and they have a point, that the present time is not the best time to incur new costs as new companies are in grave difficulties, as many companies are in grave difficulties. But sooner or later, these and more questions need to be reviewed after the COVID pandemic is brought under control. 
Secondly, the reality of the living and working conditions of the foreign migrant workers in Singapore must be seriously addressed. CSOs have been highlighting their plight consistently. We can and must do much better. The second truth, Singaporeans have a generous heart and a strong community sense. Very many came forth to help lower income families tied over this difficult period. They volunteered to ensure kids from poor families do not fall behind in their education, that they have enough to eat and are able to cope with the mental stress of parents losing their jobs. Singaporeans also came forward to prepare meals and collect clothes for the foreign workers. We became a kinder nation, kinder towards one another, but most importantly, our civic quotient increased overall. It demonstrates that in a crunch, we were pulled together. The third truth, on the whole, the Singapore government has done well in its handling of the pandemic. Although there were criticisms over the explosion of cases among the foreign workers, I think overall, it has not impacted drastically on Singapore's reputation. For a few weeks, we ate humble pie, but we overcame that because the government acted decisively to ownership of the problem and reassured the workers that their medical costs and meals would be covered by the state and they were reassured payment for their work and no other country has done as much anywhere in the world. But importantly, we kept our death rate low and as of today, none was, no one was in ICU and there were 161 cases in the hospital. Total active cases were 3,865 with 3,704 in community facilities. Now what is less appreciated because it happened under the radar is the fact that we kept the supply chains open and food imports were not disrupted during the global lockdown in the last few months and medical equipment were received. Forbes magazine, working with a survey group who spoke to companies and nonprofits, ranked 100 safest countries in the world for COVID-19. Singapore ranked fourth, Switzerland first. Prime Minister was invited by the Austrian Chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, to an online summit in May to discuss how to handle COVID-19 with Australia, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Greece, Israel, and Norway. We are considered a serious participant in discussions on COVID-19. Post-COVID, we must think through the lessons of this disruption for urban life and our economic life. The pandemic has been a wake-up call for all citizens to put health security as a top priority in planning, with food security following closely. For Singapore, without a hinterland, ensuring the food and medical supply chains, indeed, all supply chains are paramount. COVID-19 is a bigger disruption for Singapore than most countries with profound consequences for our economy because Singapore is a major trading hub and a center 
for communications. The US-China trade war has started the redirecting of supply chains, but now with COVID and closed borders, the rise of self-sufficiency nationalism, we need to understand the new reconfiguration of supply chains and how that would impact Singapore. Creating jobs for Singaporeans and helping businesses stay solvent will be a main theme for Singapore for the next few years. Now, is the Singapore governance model adequate for the future? I have looked at democracy and capitalism in my first lecture. Singapore has been criticized for its authoritarian political system, but admired for its results. Some academics write about how Singapore has disavowed liberalism or does not live up to a democratic system. Others describe it as a developmental state, the implication being Singapore is a strong state and an interventionist one with a sole or inordinate focus on economic growth. Now at independence, Singapore adopted parliamentary democracy based on the Westminster model. But right from the start, Lee Kuan Yew and his cabinet wanted to establish a system to suit Singapore's needs. They sought a model that could move quickly and facilitate the implementation of policies for the requirements of sudden statehood. The PAP opted for a unilateral legislature. They argued it would be difficult in a small country to fill two chambers with good people. The real reason simply was that to move efficiently and fast, single chambers are less cumbersome than dual chambers. The first general election in independent Singapore in 1968 produced a one-party parliament. The main opposition, the Barisan Socialists, boycotted the elections, a historical mistake for opposition politics in Singapore. The one-party parliament prevailed till 1981, when J.B. Jayaratnam won the Anson by election. During the 13 years without opposition, the PAP was accustomed to getting through the business of government speedily and efficiently in the legislature. There was every incentive to keep it that way, but they took every GE very seriously as a referendum on their performance. Now, what sort of political system did we evolve and how are we faring? In an essay in, nine, in, an essay in 1975 entitled Politics in an Administrative State, Where Has the Politics Gone? I wrote of the systematic depoliticization of Singapore politics in the 60s and 70s by the PAP government and the shift of politics to the bureaucracy, the technocrat bureaucrats, where minister, ministries and agencies debate ideas, proposals, policies, and their implementation without external consultation. The politicians, however, kept their ear to the ground through the Meet the People sessions and their constituency walkabouts. Inter-party politics disappeared with the rise of the dominant party, one-party system. Politics within the ruling party was minimal. In the administrative state, a strong political leadership took the lead and worked with bureaucracy to promote the development of Singapore. Later, 
grassroots feedback consultations were added, but the central idea of the administrative state remained. Power was centralized and decision-making entrusted to the technocratic bureaucracy. The repoliticization of Singapore began in 1981, followed by the GE of 1984. In 1984, the PAP vote plunged to 62.9% from 75.6% in the 1980 GE. J.B. Jayaratnan and Cham Si Tong were elected to parliament. Gradually but surely, repoliticization of the administrative state was taking place. The political leadership had to adjust to repoliticization. After the 1984 general elections, the PAP introduced the concept of the NCMP, and in 1990, the NMP. Both measures were meant to increase the presence of diverse voices in parliament and diminish the need for an elected opposition. But with the rapid changes in society, globalization, economic success and restructuring, travel and study abroad, and the growth of a large, well-educated middle class, dissatisfaction and a desire for political change mounted, then erupted. By the GE of 2011, with the convergence of several deeply felt social and economic issues, such as growing inequality and the fast increasing number of foreign immigrants, Singapore's populist politics arrived. The campaign atmosphere was charged. The PAP lost its first GRC to the Workers' Party and one SMC, giving the opposition six elected seats in parliament. The PAP obtained 60.1% of the popular vote, its lowest vote since independence. And in 2013, the Workers' Party picked up another seat in a by-election. But the governing PAP had not lost its feel for policies and competition. It immediately introduced a slew of social and economic policies, strengthening safety nets and conducted a consultation, consultations called Our Singapore Conversation. In the 2015 GE, the PAP improved its popular vote to almost 70%. The importance of staying connected with the shifting political ground was the lesson of, 20, of the 2011 GE. With the 2020 general election, we see a fully repoliticized Singapore. Now in the 21st century, we are working with the administrative state 2.0 or perhaps 3.0 post-2020. It has strengthened in many aspects and other aspects are attenuated. The state is strong and there is a high degree of centralization. The government's role in the economy as entrepreneur through the GLCs and its subsidiaries has expanded. Singapore has changed over the years and the Labour Force Survey of 2019 reported that 57.6% percent or almost two-thirds of our resident labor force were diploma and degree holders. Of that number, 32.4% had degrees from overseas. The number of PMETs 
had risen to 1.3 million, or 58.3% of the labour force in 2019. Finding jobs and good jobs for them is an issue. Look at chart two and you see the education uh, qualifications. PMEDs hold certain points of view about the direction of the country and are deeply unhappy about their displacement by foreign PMEDs. Their frustration is strongly expressed on social media and online platforms. A segment seeks to contest the established consensus. Opposition parties have increased in numbers and they seem to have grown notwithstanding the limited operational rule. But there's a new mushrooming of CSOs attracting the young, the educated and idealistic. The civil society scene has never been more active. The recent COVID pandemic shows that CSOs have a role to play as an early warning system for social issues and fissures in society, be it the plight of abused women, the aging poor or foreign workers, no matter how unwelcome the feedback. The government and CSOs can work together closer as both are interested in improving the lives of the vulnerable to build a better society, community. Singapore looks to the future with an explicit ambition of harnessing the new economy and finding unconventional opportunities in a transformed post-COVID world. We look for the adventurous spirit that will move us into the future economy. So we must make room for alternative views. To harvest the opportunities out there, to think the unthinkable, we must expand intellectual space, giving more room for expression to encourage Singaporeans, especially young Singaporeans, to be bold, to think differently, think innovatively. We should seriously discourage groupthink. In a successful bureaucracy, this is even more necessary to allow out-of-the-box thinking within. If our political model needs fixing, it is how to accommodate differences and diverse views in our institutions and our country. Singapore's democracy was challenged by its populist moment, but the PAP leadership recovered from it. This does not mean populism will not return to our politics. In the last decade, the issue of inequality has been highlighted in Singapore, especially as the gap seems to be widening. Discussions of rising inequality have also dominated the global political business and academic agendas. Will rising inequality undermine our democracy and our economic system? Let me make two points. First, about the economic system and then about equality. As the PEP created a democracy that suited Singapore's needs, so they shaped the free market capitalist model for the Republic. Even though 1G were at the start democratic socialists of the Harold Lasky and British Labour Party mode, Lee Kuan Yew had his ideas about the nature of human nature. 
and the necessity of incentives. They were not orthodox socialists, built an open and free market economy, welcomed MNCs, did not buy into the welfare state, but were dedicated to providing education, jobs, and housing for the people. As the economy developed, the PAP government moved in four directions, which were exceptional and came to characterize the Singapore economic model. One, Singapore took to globalization as a fish to water. We saw ourselves as a global city before it was fashionable to be a global city. We understood global supply chains. Singapore attracted MNCs to build to help us build up our skills, capabilities, and networks to capital and markets. Two, immediately after independence, the PAP government sought to eliminate the confrontational industrial strikes and trade union activism, strong disincentives for foreign investments. They created the NTUC and introduced tripartism to negotiate orderly wage increases. And three, the third feature of our economy, Singapore positioned the government to assume a proactive entrepreneurial role to establish enterprises and government-linked companies, GLCs, in key sectors to be run as profit-making commercial companies. This was the start of Singapore Inc., resulting in a large state presence in the economy. Fourth, and the fourth feature, by 1974, a holding company called Temasek Holdings Private Limited was established to hold and man manage assets previously held directly by the Singapore government with the purpose of allowing Temasek to own and manage their investments commercially. Five, in 1981, GIC, the brainchild of Dr. Go King Sui, was launched. At that time, the idea that, that a country could manage its financial reserves for its long-term future was unconventional. Nobody anywhere had heard of a sovereign wealth fund. Dr. Go was a brilliant mind, and his knowledge of economics and finance laid a strong foundation for Singapore's economic future. The Temasek and GIC investments benefit Singapore through the net investment return contributions, NIRC, to the annual budget. The NIRC framework allows the government to spend up to 50% of long-term expected returns from our reserves. Lawrence Wong, as Second Minister of Finance, said in Parliament that these investments are now and I quote, the single largest contributor to the government coffers, unquote. These revenues can be used for social spending. Put another way, the Pioneer Package and the Medeca Package were paid for with the returns from Tumasic and GIC investments. This developmental model created the enviable economic success of Singapore with the UNDP ranking Singapore number nine in the Human Development Index of 2019. <clears throat> Critics point to flaws in the model, highlighting the inequality as a troubling consequence. 
Inequality was an issue together with the cost of living in the general elections of 2011. Since then, <clears throat> critical social scientists have been prolific on the topic of inequality. Tio Yu Yan's book, This is What Inequality Looks Like, was a bestseller when it was published in 2018. In fact, it was interesting to see how the government ministers have come out in front of the poverty issue. And in 2019, it was much discussed in parliament and brought up in official speeches. In November, an academic from NUS did the first count of homeless people in Singapore and estimated the numbers were between 921 to 1050 in a study supported by the Ministry of Social and Family Development. The PAP's government's approach to equality, as then DPM Taman Shamugaratnam explained, in 2018 is to focus on social mobility, which he calls the heart and soul of our ambition. He went on to say, before we think of relativities, we have to first think about how to make sure everyone moves up, including the middle class. There is new attention to leveling the playing field by focusing on good quality preschool education for all and cheaper and good childcare for lower income families. Successive budgets have introduced creative schemes to help Singaporean employers keep their workers on the jobs during the times of economic crisis and to upskill, upgrade their skills and retrain themselves. There are transfers to make up for low-wage workers, subsidies targeted at the elderly poor, the disabled, low-income families, and healthcare transfers in particular. I think you know of all the specific packages, so I won't repeat them here. But the problem remains that there are many individuals and families who are not aware of these schemes and do not know how to access them. Government and community workers and CSOs are trying to reach out to help them. In February 2020, the Key Household Income Trends Report for Singapore shows the Gini coefficient based on household income from work per household member was, and I quote, 0 0.452 in 2019 compared to 0 0.458 in 2018. The lower the number, the better, and the lowest since 2001. After adjusting for government transfers and taxes, the Gini coefficient fell from 0.452 to 0.398 for 2019. It shows inequality has reduced, not increased. Now, the good news is that the wages of the lowest income earners are rising at a faster pace than the highest income earners. Though you will say immediately, well, the income is so different, you know, at different percentiles. The 20th percentile saw an increase in the real growth of the average household income per member over the last 10 years. And uh, Senior Minister Taman in the GE of 2020 uh, pointed out in the last 10 years, medium incomes had grown, lower wage workers had grown and productivity 
went up by one third. It has frequently been pointed out by critics that Singapore has high inequality compared to other developed economies, which have lower Gini coefficients. That is true. But Singapore's figures show tentative change in the right direction compared to the industrialized democracies of the US and Europe, where incomes have stagnated or decreased. Fortunately in Singapore, unlike other countries, there is no divisive debate about providing subsidies to the needy. There are no ideological conservative parties who argue against assisting the poor. Rather, the debate is on why not give more with the opposition pressing for bigger subsidies and giving to more groups. Inequality is an issue that must be worked at constantly. In that sense, Singapore is more like Europe, where there is an acceptance of a social responsibility to provide for the lower income groups. The PAP does not accept the welfare state, but with globalization, disruption, and sudden collapse of the world economies, our government leaders have pragmatically accepted the need to roll out safety nets in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis, rather than to follow the West in cutting back entitlements. The response during COVID-19 suggests the understanding of societal needs. As the country becomes more affluent, what were basic needs for those at the bottom 20% changes, and they will require more just to ensure their situation does not become more dire. Now we have to worry about the squeezed middle class. The work has never done. The goalposts change all the time. And so eliminating poverty is always a work in progress. The discussion on the health of the political and economic model of Singapore would not be complete without mention of two other challenges. One, foreign workers in Singapore, and two, the ability of Singapore to nurture and strengthen the presence of SMEs. The foreign local conflict, which is found in all societies with hyper-globalization, is something that must be handled politically. The effects of, of the pandemic could well slow the movement of people for a few years. There is a, but there's a limit beyond which it is not politically sustainable to maintain a huge intake of foreign population. In fact, the government has been moderating the immigration and become more selective while keeping the doors open. There is a natural attrition that will come with COVID-19, with the COVID-19 recession. Now, the last point I want to make about the future of the economic model for Singapore is that we must pay more attention and invest more to strengthen the SMEs. In July 2019, and I mean startups as well and gig workers. In July 2019, our official state statistics list 273 SMEs in Singapore. SMEs make up 99% of our companies employing 72% of our workforce. And together they produce 47% of our 
GDP. One problem is that SMEs are formed, but SMEs exit too if they do not survive. Most of them have problems with manpower, cash flow, market size, and innovation. Efforts have been made by the government with many programs and schemes to help SMEs, and the 2020 budget has assistance packages for SMEs, but SMEs must decode the budget. The problem is communicating to the SMEs in a language they understand to take advantage of the help offered and the flexibility of the conditions. Implementation is important. In the civil service, it is said, implementation is policy. If you have a good policy, but it is not or badly implemented, you don't have a policy. So bureaucracy has to ensure they deliver assistance in a timely and helpful manner. For our SMEs to do well, they must go beyond the Singapore market. And uh, Enterprise Singapore has come up with many creative packages to strengthen SMEs, and they are working on leading business missions overseas. But I don't think it's just a matter of going overseas to what new markets have to offer. SMEs need to strategically enter these markets. Perhaps these SMEs need the GLCs and TLCs to take on a few of them on a project or projects as consultants or contractors so they can build a track record and gain experience. Post-COVID-19, the economies globally will be in a bad shape. It is a good time to rethink. How can we help our SMEs to retool themselves for success at home and in the region? Now, let me turn to the last section of this lecture. It is the new regional and global context for Singapore. Singapore has thrived since its birth in a relatively benign and open international environment. We must now prepare ourselves for a more hostile, less generous world where nativism, nationalism, and protectionism are on the rise. The trends were there but have been accelerated by COVID-19. Singapore is a global hub for many activities that has, that has been the foundation of our rapid growth. It is likely hyper-globalization will slow down and some predict deglobalization taking place or globalization. Most big countries will be tempted to turn inward. India's Prime Minister Modi told his people in May that the, and I quote, era of economic self-reliance has begun, close quote. Japan's COVID-19 stimulus will give special subsidies to firms that repatriate their factories home. EU officials speak of strategic autonomy and the United States urged many of their large MNCs to adopt onshore manufacturing. We will have to read the new trends to take advantage of the new regionalization and regionalism. Singapore is taking a positive view that the shift in global supply chains might benefit Singapore as MNCs move their production lines to the region from China and India. Singapore should leverage on its position as a financial and logistics hub with strong rule of law. 
there is another source of uncertainty. The US-China rivalry has deteriorated far faster than anyone anticipated. What will this mean for countries in the region, for friends and allies? Can we create space for ourselves between the giants? Before I explore the path and Singapore's position, let us examine the equities we have with each power. From the start, Singapore has been a strong supporter of China's peaceful and constructive engagement with the region. There are many G2G projects in Suzhou, Tianjin and Chongqing. China was our largest trademark partner in 2019 with $137.3 billion of merchandise imports and exports, while trade in services amounted to $35 billion. China's investments in Singapore in 2017 was $36.3 billion. The Belt and Road Initiative has been a major opportunity for cooperation in infrastructural and financial connectivity with China and opportunities for third-party collaboration. Singapore accounted for 85% of total inbound investments to China from BRI countries and nearly one-third of China's outbound investments to BRI countries flow through Singapore. And we are working with China to establish a new Southern Transport Corridor, which links Chongqing with Beibu Gulf in Guangxi. And so you see Singapore connecting the Overland Silk Road with the Maritime Silk Road. Now on the U United States, the US is a major economic and defense partner of Singapore. After they were asked to leave Subic Bay and Clark Air Base, we offered the US access to our military facilities in a 1990 agreement. We hosted to host Comlock Westpac in Sembawang. This agreement was renewed in September 2019 until 2035. In 2005, we also signed a strategic framework agreement with the US. Bilateral Singapore-US trade in merchandise goods was 105 billion and services amounted to 75 billion. US FDI cumulative stock in Singapore in 2018 was $296 billion. There are 4,200 US companies in Singapore. Now, there is no doubt we have substantial interests and relations with both powers, but we have never been in this place before. We have not felt the pressure and tug of war of both powers. The period of US-China strategic engagement was best for the region and Singapore. Now, the South China Sea is seen to be the site of the new great game. There is no consensus among ASEAN countries on how we would respond. And there is no ASEAN foreign policy or common position. It is probably true to say ASEAN countries and all Asian countries, except China, has a right to grow into a great power. But we would like to see China play by the international rules and smaller countries would like to see China grow as a magnanimous power. An ISIS Yusuf Ishak survey of 2020 
of ASEAN opinion makers is telling about attitudes towards the two major powers. On the question of who they see as the most influential economic and political strategic power in Southeast Asia, China easily outpolled the US, but the countries were also worried about this influence. On the question, who ASEAN, if they were forced to choose, would pick, you can see the answer in figure seven. Interesting is the fact that though 53.6% said they would choose the United States and 46.4% China, the United States has just three countries, Vietnam, the Philippines and Singapore, saying they would choose the US. Now, these are opinion makers, not the government. Seven US ASEAN countries chose China. ASEAN as a whole wanted not to make a choice, but to seek out third parties to broaden their strategic space. As you know, Prime Minister in the Shangri-La Dialogue speech was addressing the dilemma of choice, which is a question on the minds of every ASEAN member state. He said, and I quote, small states like Singapore can do little to influence the big powers, but we are not entirely without agency. He went on to say there are opportunities for small countries to deepen economic cooperation, strengthen regional integration and build up multilateral institutions. This way we can strengthen our influence as a group and our collective position. What is significant is that we are seeing the emergence of a coalescence of like-minded countries who simply want to carry on doing their business, supporting their growth and development at a time when the two giants are locked in intensifying competition with each other and narrowing the space for medium-sized and smaller countries. This, these like-minded countries are not ideological and it is not formal. They are just like-minded countries who can work together on specific issues. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic saw Singapore working with six countries, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Chile, Myanmar, Brunei, to ensure that trade lines via land and sea, land, sea and air remained open for the flow of goods and essential supplies. Following that, Singapore and 12 other countries pledged to maintain global links amid the pandemic. Absent US global leadership, which the world could count on in the past, Canada convened a ministerial group of Brazil, France, Germany, Indonesia, Italy, Morocco, Mexico, Peru, ROK, Singapore, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. These countries pledged to pool their research and scientific resources and share findings. Neither the US nor China are in the group, which is clearly taking a neutral path and to cut down the politicization of science. Regionalism or coalitions of a few states for very practical purposes on how to deal with the opening up after the pandemic may point the way to newer regional subgroupings. 
Australia and New Zealand are discussing the formation of the trans-Tasman bubble, including Fiji, to open up the travel, tourism and business ties. Presumably, if this takes off, other countries can sign on, virus permitting. It is also possible that in the Northeast Asia area, Japan, the ROK, that's Korea, and China could form another bubble. The economic and potential geopolitical dynamics of the overlapping membership would be interesting and would be consequential. To choose or not to choose. For some strategic thinkers, for some time, strategic thinkers have pressed ASEAN countries to indicate which country they would choose to align with in the long run. The Trump administration was not the first to pose this choice. President Bush did the same with the war on terror. President Trump has now placed this question front and center to his friends and allies. Are you with us or against us? Now the indications are that no country in Europe or Asia would like an exclusive relationship with the US or China. The choice is not binary. All want to be able to develop relations with both powers. As things progress, no one anticipates a grand bargain struck by either side with countries in the region at a forum. Singapore will not be put in a position to make a final choice like marriage, nor need it. We should not make a choice for as long as we can. Choice will be exercised by each country to line up with the US or China, depending on what initiatives the two powers put on the table. If the US puts a TPP on the table, countries will sign up for it or they will not. The US has put the free and open Indo-Pacific on the table, but ASEAN countries are cautious. China placed AIIB and BRI on the table and all countries in the region signed up except for Australia and Japan. For the next two decade or two, we will continue to see the United States as the preferred strategic and defense partner or friend in Asia, if it is not seen to be retrenching its interests. China will emerge as the important and sought after economic partner, but increasingly technology partner as well. Over time, it will be discernible if the flavor of the region has changed perceptibly. But it will not be just how many US or Chinese initiatives a country selects from each side. The question is whether strategic choices are more important than economic choices and are more telling, revealing. But increasingly, it can also be argued that economics and markets is hard power too, and just as fundamental. So how will Singapore do in a time of flux? I am optimistic. I believe we will walk into the future reasonably prepared. We are acutely aware of the fluid international developments, and we are working with many like-minded countries, but it will be harder increasingly. If there be a Cold War 2.0 or 1.5, it will look different 
and alignments will be different. It will not be the old Cold War. Countries will want to have relationships with both powers. We cannot predict the future, but we must be optimistic and active. For that way, we look for solutions and build a path forward. Gloom is not destiny. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Chan. May I now invite Mr. Bilahari Kosikan to start the Q&A session. Thank you. Thank you, Hengqi, for another masterly lecture, which has given us all much food for thought, and, but it's only what we have come to expect of you. Uh, before we take questions, uh, Hengqi has asked me to tell the audience or to remind the audience that she wrote the lecture well before the recent GE. Uh, and this is not a lecture just analyzing the results of the GE. Her interests are broader, and I hope you will frame your questions with those broader concerns in mind. Uh, before giving, before opening the virtual floor to the audience, let me exercise the moderator's privilege and ask Hengqi the first question. Hengqi, this is the third and last of your lectures. Uh, mm -hmm. How you got away with just three is a question we shall discuss separately. <laughs> your first lecture dealt with the fraying of global order and the pressures on the two ideological pillars of that order that were well nigh um, unchallenged for 25 years, from 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down to 2008 when the global financial crisis broke out. And those two pillars are, of course, capitalism and democracy. Um, your second lecture dealt with one symptom of the fraying of global order, the most dangerous and serious symptom. And these are the tensions that have arisen in US-China relations and show no sign of abating. In fact, uh, that US-China relations will not improve uh, and will probably get worse over the next five to 10 years is a safe prediction and, and will be so irrespective of what the outcome of the November presidential elections in the US will be. And this evening, you have zeroed your focus into some aspects of what this all means for Singapore. Now, your three lectures have, as we expect of you, all been important, stimulating, and insightful. But one very glaring omission struck me. Uh, last year, Sharon Siddiqui, uh, whom I hope is listening to this, and you published a very important book on Singapore's multiculturalism. And here it is. Ah. <laughs> uh, all of you in the audience ought to read it. It's rather expensive for an individual, but I hope National Library Board is taking note and acquires many copies. And no, Enchi did not pay me to say this. <laughs> I did it voluntarily. Anyway, but none of your lectures have mentioned, except perhaps very, very obliquely, uh, identity issues which is the, really the subject of your book, Multiculturalism in Singapore. Uh, in your first lecture, you quoted from W.B. Yeats's poem, The Second Coming. And it occurred to me that the rough beast that slouches invisibly but palpably 
through all three of your lectures is identity politics. This was both the cause and consequence of the challenge to democracy and capitalism and the fraying of the global order. Uh, identity is also easily recognizable in US-China tensions and their competition has taken on rather ugly racial overtones. And of course, identity is always lurking in the background of a new city-state like Singapore, particularly when the multicultural horizontal identity by which we have chosen to organize ourselves is so unique in our region and increasingly assailed globally by different hierarchical conceptions of social and political organization. Now, I know it will take another series of lectures to do justice to the subject, but how, but would you care to briefly rectify this omission? How will all you have spoken about this evening and in your previous lectures affect the Singapore identity? A very simple question for you to start with. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Bilal Hari. I knew those nice things you said was just a prelude to loading this question on, you know. Uh, you are right, I did not touch on identity because it's a very profound and large question. And I chose to focus on inequality, democracy, uh, capitalism. And of course, identity is part of uh, the politics in the US and Europe too. And even when you talk of uh, foreigners versus local, it's all identity. So identity lurks everywhere, as you say. Let me be brief because there are I think other questions that will be coming forward. How does it impact on Singapore? I think in Singapore, that because we are an immigrant society, there's always anxiety about the Singapore identity and the subtext Singapore loyalty and allegiance to the country. Now, my attitude to identity, and I will emphasize this here, is that identity comes in layers in each of us are different identities. And, you know, I am a Singapore, Singaporean Chinese or Chinese Singaporean, and I am Singaporean, you know, in many circumstances, but I also feel Chinese in some other circumstances, like appeals to cultural programs, you know, culture shows, I listen to, Sing Sin on Chinese TV, you know, I find that quite nice. And uh, so you have that identity. So different layers of identity. And the challenge with the rise of China for Singapore is really where does the Chinese identity go? Where do the Chinese or rather, you know, go with the identity? But it's not just your Chinese Singaporeans. When, as India gets to be a great power, you will find the identity of the Indian Singaporeans also attracted towards India and they'll be drawn there. And I think Singapore Malays will be drawn to when Indonesia becomes you know, a full middle power that it is aspiring to be. And when there's growth in Malaysia, so all communities feel tugs and pulls. The point is, I don't think I would be alarmist about it. It is there. And if the Singapore state, if the Singapore government produces good policies, the right policies to win the hearts and minds of people, you can, in fact, allow some of this, you know. 
and they can feel drawn to Indonesia or drawn to China or drawn to India, but at the same time, they will truly feel they are part of Singapore. And I think many Singaporeans feel this. You know, I was interviewing a young man for uh, the book on multiculturalism. He's a Singaporean, but of Cambodian origin. He said when he's in Cambodia, he feels very Singaporean. And when he's in Singapore, he feels very Cambodian, you know, and sometimes he feels very Singaporean in Singapore and Cambodian in Cambodia. So he's a bit confused, but that's fine, you know, and I think that uh, that's how people will be. We just have to manage it and really draw the lines when lines have to be seriously drawn, but not to overreact because you can put the population off. And I do not want every Chinese businessman going to China, coming back feeling, oh gosh, you know, I hope nobody thinks I'm disloyal. I hope that doesn't happen. Thank you, Engji. Uh, we have, I have received a number of questions which have been submitted through Facebook. Uh, predictably, they are all related to the GE, but uh, I think they are also <laughs> yes. broader. We have to take some of that. We have to take. They are broader. They are broader. Uh, at least I will summarize, and I'll try to cluster them. All right. The first cluster uh, encompasses questions by Mr. Victor Mills, Zitan, Ms. Mona Chia, Salman Bukhari, and um, and Salman Bukhari. And I'm trying to summarize the essence of what they were all trying to get at. Uh, the, the, the basic question is, what is the greatest challenge for Singapore in uniting our people post-election, post this election? Uh, and as a subset of that uh, broad umbrella, you know, do you think the electorate understands the dangers of democracy as it has been practiced in uh, the West? Uh, and do you agree that that kind of democracy is not good for a small city-state? In the same line, do you, do you think liberal trends are leading to greater intolerance to divergent views in Singapore? Uh, and going liberal forward... Liberal trends, did you say? Liberal, liberal trends. trends. Liberal trends. Um, leading to general intolerance to divergent views in Singapore. The question actually was, you know, uh, focused on opposition supporters being very antagonistic to su support for the government, but it could be well turned on its head and say, Government supporters also are very antagonistic to uh, opposition supporters, yes. right? So I think it's a, it's a general thing. Do this, are we getting more intolerant as the politics gets more complicated and, and more uh, thing? And finally, uh, how do we avoid this kind of polarization? And do you think that it is certain that a multi-party or at least a a bi-party system is going to evolve in Singapore. I think that's all one cluster. Wow, uh, thank you. It's, uh, they're all very good questions, by the way, and they are questions we should think about. First of all, I still think we, there is a developing political culture in Singapore, which I highlighted, yeah. that wants a kinder, gentler politics. You know, they want to treat everybody nicely and there are rules of uh, politics and I do not think Singaporeans want to imitate the very divisive and mean politics 
of the democracies of the West, even when they want democracy. So that's a good start. But in competitive politics, as you get more competitive, willy-nilly, you will become more polarized. It has happened. You know, so we have to take that. It's not like, you know, let's all be harmonious, but have competitive politics. That's a reality, you know. And I have thought, well, you know, when I hear younger people say, why should the PAP ask for a strong mandate? Have you ever seen a political party going for elections in a democracy <laughs> saying, give me a weak mandate? I mean, you know, it comes with the turf. Democracy sees some of that. But, you know, I do not want to portray what has happened with the election. Just because 10 opposition members were uh, voted in and the opposition party had a better vote, doesn't mean Singapore is divided. Please do not portray us that way. And I think the opposition should not and government should not portray. We are just maturing and it's been a healthy expression and messages being sent, expression of views, you know. Uh, I do not think we are at the point of being disunited or being, you know, too divisive. So that's one point. And how do you unify uh, the group? Well, you can't truly unify because those who voted for the opposition and are committed uh, Workers' Party or PSP members or SDP, whatever, will feel that way. And the committed PAP members will feel very strongly PAP. You know, that's the way politics is. It's in every other country. But you don't consider that divisive politics. Each one now has chosen a side to back, you know. Uh, does liberalism lead to intolerance? I would have thought liberalism... Well, you can be too politically correct with liberalism, and that's intolerant. And I've seen that on some campuses in the West, and I think that's not healthy. That's, I think, liberalism gone a bit uh, funny. But liberalism should not lead to greater intolerance of divergent views. In fact, it should. But people get so uh, excited or so convinced that they are right in their liberal view that they can be illiberal towards those who do not share the liberal view. So yes, that, that's something we have to look for. But maybe I'm optimistic, but I really don't think that's our problem is a multi-party system good for Singapore. We will have a multi-party system. Frankly, the two-party system is an aberration that only the US and Britain has, you know, and occasionally the Liberal Party pops up. Most other democracies have many parties, multi-parties. Okay, I will... Um... Well, there's one geopolitical question, so for a change, I'll ask that first before going back to the political questions. And the, this is from Winston Lu, Wilson Liu. And basically, again, I'm going to summarize the question. Is it possible to maintain close ties with both US and China going forward? I know you have kind of uh, answered that in your, in your lecture, but perhaps the point you made is, bears repeating. <laughs> Yes, sir. I think that you have answered the question whether it is possible to maintain close ties with both US and China in your, in your uh, lecture. But I think your answer bears repeating and emphasizing. Yes. And, right. and I think this is an opportunity. Right. As I said, you know, how do you make choice? You make choice in response to policies, 
you know, when the U.S. offers a policy and or an initiative, as I say, do we want to sign up for it or do we not? When China offers an initiative, do ASEAN countries, does Singapore want to sign up for that? And you make your choices. Now, for the free and open Indo-Pacific, countries in the region are a little nervous because they see it as that is about the containment of China. So the US is now also very smartly trying to change that a little to say it's not about China. So let us see going forward how that is done. I think in the end, everyone will be choosing a number of policies from the United States and a number of policies from um, uh, China. And uh, if all the countries continue doing that, what can they do? What can these countries do? I won't sell you something. That's what they will say. Okay, you don't sign up for my initiative. I'm not going to sell you what you really want to buy. Could be weapons, you know. So, but I think we can keep on like this for a while. And uh, you don't have to choose, you know, but in, people will read what they want to read into all the initiatives. And some, sometimes, you know, people tell us we are too pro-US. Sometimes it, the Americans say you are too pro-China, so we must be right somewhere in the middle. Because if you are seen by the United States as being too pro-China and the Chinese see us as being, being too pro-US, we are dead center. Absolutely. I mean, choices in the real world are never binary. <laughs> You look at the no. free, uh, open Indo-Pacific, Japan has its own version, which is not exactly right. the same as the American yes. version. Yes, and Indonesia Australia has, has version. its India own has version. version. And yes. even look at the BRI, people pick it. How the BRI is done in Central Asia is not exactly the same in, as in Southeast Asia or in okay. Africa. And in Southeast Asia, how it's done in Indonesia is not the same as how it's done in Malaysia or Cambodia and so on. Anyway, the next question, I think I'll go back to... Um, Oh no. Election. Uh, no, oh, wait, hold on. Huh? I have now lost all the questions. But anyway, I can. <laughs> so take your time answering this one <laughs> because so I can find the, the questions again. Uh, the question has to do related to the point you made about avoiding polarization or living with polarization. It has to do with education. How do we educate our young? so as to live in this more complex political environment so that the inevitable political um, disagreements do not get out of hand? You know, it was the idea in the uh, de-ghettoization of the HDB estates that, you know, you do not have uh, uh, ethnic communities just mixing only with themselves. But, you know, in truth, we do find in school, you know, p uh, students cluster if they have the same language or same ethnicity. It happens. How do you avoid po polarization? We can only keep producing more opportunities for a class of multi-ethnicities, multi-races to be together. It's exposure to it. And how do we keep organizing that? I am very glad that in recent years, we have become more and more aware of multi-ethnicities, although we have to improve still on tolerance. Not everyone has the same tolerance or think of different ethnicities other than their own in the same positive way. 
And that we've got to try to change. Yes, it's textbooks, you know, and really increasing the opportunities of mixing. The problem is in this digital world, we are all just going into the websites and the chat groups of maybe our own kind, our own values, our own politics. So we are quite siloed. And how do you break through that silo? You know, which those silos which are building up with technology and the digital world. I think it's a very serious question. I, I can come up with very specific things, but it's a, a whole bunch of actions, not just one action. It has to happen in school. It has to happen in the social space, mainly the social space. And I, that's where it can. And I'm always very aware of ensuring that, you know, we have a diversity when we hire, when we have a party, when we have speakers on the platform. And, uh, but I can't say everyone, you know, shares the same kind of reflex. I remember walking into a event in, on an American campus organized by Singapore. And I walked in and I looked, I said, why are there so few minorities here? And the organizer did not think of it. They just allowed everybody to register and did not go out of the way to make sure that there was quite a broad representation. So the point is be aware of it, work for it, increase the social spaces for engagement. And uh, you hope with time we learn. And I think younger people, uh, there is a group, but there's still a group also. I, I like to think of younger people as more liberal, more uh, multi-ethnic, inter-ethnic, but uh, there is also a number of younger people that live in their own separate siloed worlds. Okay, thank you. Uh, that question, by the way, came from Mr. Salman Bukhari. Thank you, Mr. Bukhari, for your question. I hope yeah. he has answered it. I'll go back now to uh, a cluster of questions, again, related with uh, politics, huh? but, in, but they are broader questions. Uh, well, here uh, we have, in, you know, ask, this is for Mr. Danapal Kumar and Mr. <coughs> Excuse me, and Fang Yi Yang. Huh? They ask, questions which I cluster together, all right? Are Singaporeans being too critical of good governance or maybe insufficiently appreciative of good governance? And the other question which is related is to what extent did the flight to safety mechanism fail because of the PAP's real or perceived failings in handling COVID? Or does this represent a broader shift in attitudes regarding what we want and can accept uh, in a government or in a crisis? In other words, is good, government, good governance underrated now or not enough? Um, a short and easy answer is that we have taken good governance for granted. I think this is my view because we've had good governance all the time. The one way to know it is when you travel out of Singapore. When you live in a different society, I am constantly being told in the United States, what a wonderful government we have and we wish we could have your government, etc. In Singapore, Singaporeans are very critical of government, you know, and they point to all the little 
pock marks on the face, you see. Now, uh, in fact, when I came back in uh, 2012 from the United States, I, I was at a conference and a foreign businessman said to me, I don't understand Singaporeans, you know. Why are you all always complaining? You have no perspective. You should come to my country, you know. So I think we just got used to good governance and we take good governance for granted. And I think we should try to appreciate that. Of course, the best lesson is when you start having bad governance, but I, I know, I hope we never get to that point. And um, it's, uh, I think the values that are being emphasized even by some of the opposition parties show they understand what good governance entails, you know? The fact that the Workers' Party is very much a moderate party and like the PAP, I know they don't want to be known as that, but, you know, they don't want to defer too much, means they understand what are the values at stake and what, in the end, a large proportion of Singaporeans value, you know? And that must include all the principles that make up good governance and uh, it's uh, yes and in a, but you know we should not see an election like this as a rejection of good governance either it's an election and is an election where grievances were there people you know were losing jobs and their businesses were in trouble so all these are specific reasons at a particular election also uh, you know it is true that many people believe the PAP would win anyway. And I think all of us know we all received all those bookie uh, uh, announcements where I saw a couple which said the PAP will sweep everything, you know? And there were other uh, bookie uh, announcements where they said that the opposition will sweep everything. So there's a lot of, uh, shall we say, disinformation being circulated pre-election. But I think Singaporeans knew they would have the PAP in government. So you are ensured of safety and incumbency of the incumbents. So, but they do yearn to have an opposition voice in parliament. And, uh, that, and I think the results show that. And younger um, Singaporeans show that they value this. Now, I would say that frankly, if the PAP were ever in a position when they, they are, you know, when the seats in parliament become like uh, you have 83 seats now, at, let's say, you know, the vote is very close and you have about uh, 30 seats, 35, 40 seats in parliament, that probably 35 is not uh, mathematically, you'll be talking in that way. Uh, I think if it gets about 30 seats in parliament, people will think very carefully when they vote. And if the opposition parties come up to the expectations, well, people will say, let's see, you know. But if the performance is not good, then, you know, there will be the feeling about what the PAP offered as good governance would also be appreciated again. But, you know, PAP could also, you know, get complacent and not, uh, you know, attend to what they have attended to in the past and done what they did. And they then would be 
also in some tight spot. Thank you. I am now going to have a cluster of questions that deal with politics, but structures of politics, institutions, uh, of public institutions. And these are from Constancy. I don't know where is the MFA Constancy. It is from Mr. Katigesu Gunasilan and from uh, Junyang. And the questions, if I summarize, first of all, if you were a member of the Constitutional Commission to review the elected presidency, do you think you would review it the same way? Or would you review it the same way again? Uh, then I am. You, a, I was a member. I know. So you are complicit, right? <laughs> but would you do it again the same way if you were, if it was done again, right? Uh, then would do you need? Do you think we should re, we should do away with the GRCs and revert to a system of all SMCs? And finally, uh, you have talked about. Uh, the administrative state, how do you think or do you think the civil service needs to evolve and if so how? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, gosh, I can, uh, I'll take a few, uh, but uh, you have to repeat the questions because I didn't... Okay, the first question to... is on the constitutional amendments. Elected president, uh, yes. If, no, no, well, elected, let me... uh, the, you know, the one you were on, huh? The, I the was on presidency. Yes, yes. All right. Would you, would, if you were yes. doing it again, would you do it the same way? Right. Secondly, uh, do you think GRCs should be uh, done away with, and we should revert to all SMCs? And finally, uh, I guess I will summarize that question by Mr. Junyan. Uh, do you think the civil service needs to uh, evolve to deal with this new political situation? If so, how? Well, the first question, you know, the Constitutional Commission. If you read the report of the Constitutional Commission, um, you will find that uh, there is a provision where we said, of course, you know, we can completely do away with the, you can move away from the elected presidency and go towards uh, parliament appointing as we did in the past. That was one way, then you can ensure that you will always have a rotation and uh, ethnic groups, ethnic uh, groups will all be given fair representation and each will have its turn. I want to add that, you know, I want to declare and add that I, it has always been my view that the elect, the presidency of Singapore should in fact rotate and should and different ethnic groups must have an opportunity to occupy that seat because the, the presidency of the country is a, is a symbol of the country and it must unify the country and it must represent what the country looks like in terms of its demography and ethnicity. So I'm for this, any mechanism that allows for uh, better representation and ensuring the representation of every community. So that is what I would say. Would I have done the same? You know, it's, it's never, in fact, a good policy to answer questions that would I have done the same thing in the past? Uh, so I don't want to answer that. Would I have acted in the same way before? You know, uh, it's not like, you know, would you have married the same person? You know, it's, uh, I, I don't think that kind of question, you know, 
is very useful. But I would say, if you look at the report, that report on the commission, uh, Constitutional Commission report did add the proviso that there is another way of doing it too. You know, so, but we have now the elected presidency as the Constitutional Commission did uh, recommend and it was adopted, right. Uh, the second question was on ERC. Um, what? ERC. Uh, should I think that GRC and revert to all SMCs? You know, uh, one should never change uh, constitutions and pro constitutional provisions too often of uh, political electoral arrangements too often. Uh, changing Gerrymandering is what every country does, but you cannot do it too blatantly. I think that has to be changed. But most countries do some gerrymandering. Yeah, but to change the GRC system now and make it all SMCs, you are chopping and changing too fast. I think there is some merit to GRCs because it was introduced to ensure that there is minority representation, you know, uh, and it does. And certainly it has helped the opposition win, you know, a slate of candidates, five at one go, come on, you know, it will help the opposition too. It don't, not only just helps the governing party, it helps the opposition. Five seats in Aljunit, five seats in Senkang. Otherwise, you've got to go slowly, one, 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 one. It's a much harder exercise. Uh, I, I'm, I don't feel strongly about whether we keep GRCs or not. I thought the reason that we had GRCs so that we can ensure minority representation was a good one for me when it was introduced and I don't see the reason to take it away. On the civil service, right? Uh, the civil service and the administrative state Ah, the civil service. They are all my friends, some of the civil servants. But I think that a civil service, the civil service in Singapore has to be aware when they implement and when they make, when they make policies, they really should think very hard and make sure we don't allow groupthink to infect us. And it's very serious, but we should. We've got to do the self-check ourselves. And when we are implementing policies, we should do it with a human heart and a human touch. It is not just by the playbook, because, you know, this is the SOP. And because we're so concerned about some discretion that you will be challenged, but then it is a very cold implementation of policy. So I think if we implement policies and it goes to the ground, we should do it intelligently with a feel for the ground. And that would really help. Okay, now I thank you. I will go to a cluster of questions on economics, economic development. Uh, one from Jennifer Lim. What are, the, what are some of the undesirable developments you have observed which might render Singapore irrelevant or less relevant in the global economy? Related to that, is some uh, another question from Siok Kun Lee. What principles should we adopt in restructuring our economy to 
further improve on the version of democracy that we have in Singapore. And a very specific question for you wearing your, your city's hat. All right. Uh, will the Jurong CBD continue to be worked on? Uh, given the economic the Jurong Central Business District. Yeah, will be worked on given the 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 challenges of the recession we are in now. Uh, you ask me, I ask who. Well, <laughs> you are the city's expert. <laughs> well, now uh, let me take the first question first, uh, which is that what are some of the undesirable forces that yeah. are emerging that will impact? On Singapore's position, right? Yeah, as a as a global city, is in that the it? because in the global economy as a global city? In the global economy, I think. Uh, well, you know, this is COVID, and as I said in my lecture, it's really countries becoming more protectionist. They practice nationalism, and they want to bring, in fact, many industries back home. This kind of self sufficiency nationalism. Don't rely on people too much because the supply chains can be broken. So you might as well start producing everything yourself at home, which really is not a good economic argument because then you do not become competitive and you're paying down high prices. But that is happening a bit. And let's see how far it goes, the redirection of supply chains, the reconfiguration of the supply chains. And I think that's what we have to watch very carefully. And I think this is what our government leaders are doing. They're watching, how is it going? And as you watch, how can you capitalize or how can you make sure you benefit from it? And you need to have a, uh, a sense of what is happening in the region, in international politics. And you need to have relationships and networks because then you can try to, um, you know, uh, make your argument and bring back the business. You know, when I say that uh, Singapore's reputation hasn't been that much affected, it's very important. It's about the Singapore brand. Singapore has done well because the Singapore brand is strong. We are seen to be competent. We have solutions. We are able to do things and we are able to deliver. And that's not just the political leaders, they have the plans and policies, but the Singaporeans working together and we produce this result. I think so long as we are seen in this way, we can produce the results, we are good, we do quality work, we are efficient, we will still be able to persuade others that maybe it's not such a bad thing to put you know, your headquarters and turn your you know, your, the supply chain, you know, make a stop in Singapore, we can still make those arguments. So we have to burnish our brand. It's not just to be brand, brand proud for the sake of being brand proud. I'm brand proud and conscious for a particular point. It's not just for country as a, you know, a nebulous concept. It's for the people. You do business, you go to universities, and you make your living in the world because of the Singapore brand. And that's why we must all work to preserve that brand. So in this um, 
instance of the redirection of the supply chains and what we do in a much more competitive and in a way selfish world, I think we have to keep showing Singapore can deliver the results, we are efficient, we are honest, etc., etc., and we can still keep a part of the business. Uh, right. Now, there was another uh, question. Principles to adopt in the restructuring of the economy. Am I right, Bilari? Well, there, there, I think you have answered that question in your last answer. Uh, but there was a very specific question about the Jurong CBD. Jurong. Huh? Well, uh, frankly, I'm not in a position to answer that question, uh, you know. Uh, but I, I will say this. If you look at how Singapore acts, the interesting thing about the PAP government and the PAP leadership is that we, in a way, we never let a crisis go to waste. There's a crisis, there's an economic downturn, we invest, we build, and we do that first. And because then price is low, is cheap, you build. And later, build and they will come and you are there ready when the uh, recovery takes place. So I would think that maybe they will keep up with the business district because first, in a way, it's stimulating the economy. You're building, you're creating jobs, etc. But what they build, they've got to think about how you're going to design the business district. Now, I have to say, I'm not in conversation about this, but I think this is how uh, government will think because this is how they've thought in the past. They may rejig the district, the business district in a certain way, because uh, you've got to think, there's a lot of people in the city's uh, space which are asking, do you need so much office space? What do you do with the real estate? That's another bunch of questions. So as we redesign this business district, I'm sure government planners will be thinking these questions, but I do not see them stopping simply because business, you know, there's a big downturn happening out there. You know, we have gone five minutes over time, but with your permission, because there are a lot of questions, I'll continue yeah. for another five or ten minutes. Five or seven minutes, right? Uh, do so. Okay, you don't mind, right? Okay, to a, a cluster of questions on globalization. Uh, again, I'm going to try to summarize them. Uh, uh, these are questions by Jeffrey Ong, Karen Yeo, Lim Godong, Roderick, Jeremiah, Robert. Uh, and the question is that, you know, when globalization first occurred, some thought that the role of the nation state would be diminished. Um, uh, yeah. So people will get more familiar with, you know, the world gets flatter to use Tom Friedman's uh, argument, right? Now, do you think the nation state will endure or will it decrease going forward? Uh, related to that is there seems to be a lack of global leadership right now. When any major power takes an initiative, it is opposed by some other uh, major power or it uh, appears that way. And, you know, uh, I guess historically, Singapore's geographic location was a crucial factor. Is that still going to be a crucial factor going forward? Um, uh, 
Can I take the last question first? You know, it's on my mind. It's the globe, it's the location that has helped us. You know, this question has been posed in a different way. Singapore is a global city. Will we be bypassed? And that answers some of your other questions. And what will by cause Singapore to be bypassed? You know, people who not read and analyze global cities will point out that if a global city such as Singapore develops a number of activities and you agglomerate activities and you specialize and they all become so inevitable that you are the go-to place to be, you keep your position. And people will make a stop because you are the place to be. And I think if we think of it that way, Singapore has agglomerated its activities very well, no matter whether it's shipping, communications, oil, it's the banking, you know, you have a whole slew of ancillary activities around an industry that builds up the importance of that industry. Now, that will make it hard to shake things off. Will our location ever be in fact, irrelevant, will we be made irrelevant? That's a question that's always asked. And I have told many people overseas that, do you know the Singapore cabinet, in fact, in the 1980s was the, must be the only cabinet in the world, was it 80s or 90s, that read a history of Venice, you know, this big, thick book. And I think every cabinet minister in Singapore would have read that because what happened to Venice could happen to us and you can be made irrelevant. So we must always find out what is the important trend, what is the important technological development so that you are not blindsided. I think that's what Singapore has to do and that's what I think the PA, that's what the PAP government has been doing. How not to be blindsided, how to anticipate what is happening. But you never know, you know, Honolulu was bypassed when the, you know, the size of aeroplanes change, you know, and you don't have to stop in Honolulu anymore. So in Singapore, we must always find out what technology can render us obsolete, but what will you come up instead as the new wave of, uh, you know, economic activities and using different kinds of technology. So, uh, maybe in the future, it is not location, location, and location. Uh, but we could have location as the digital hub. And that's a different kind of location. So that's how I would answer that question. Uh, lack of global leadership. I'm going to taking them, uh, you know, yeah. um, last question first. Yes, there's a lack of global leadership. And I think it's very difficult to govern well today. Uh, because the world has gone so complex and it isn't, you know, we always look back to World War II, which produced all your giants, or we thought they were giants. Huh? Now they want to pull down Winston Churchill's statue, but Winston Churchill is considered a giant, Roosevelt. Even Stalin is a giant in the Soviet Union, but, you know, but of course, there are so many negatives there too, you know, but there were giants at a particular time in history. Today, the world is getting very complex so that, you know, it is very hard to see giants stride across the stage. And every 
In fact, you'll be lucky for the leader if they do not leave the stage, you know, in, uh, with the tail sort of uh, hanging behind them, you know. So it's, uh, it's not easy to be a powerful global leader, a strong global leader. It's just, uh, I, it's just that things are getting so complex. And the, I think we really have to come to grips with technology and how disruptive technology can be and how technology can reshape society so that it's hard for even those in government to try to connect with society. And that is something, that's why I said that the disruption caused by technology is greater than the disruption caused by COVID. That was my first lecture, because I see this is, you know, this will carry on for a long time. So yes, there's a lack of global leadership, but regional groupings in regions, countries are trying to come together to make up for that deficit by offering regional leadership. Uh, nation state, is that the question? Sure, the nature All right. state. Yeah, uh, will, with globalization, will the nation state endure? You know, we first thought, you know, globalization will all be, uh, you know, uh, is it the earth is flat? We, will we be one global community? We found that was not true. With globalization, there was greater turning inwards and an emphasis on localization. When you are so global, you lose your identity and you do not know where you belong to. So people yearn for their own distinctive identity in the country or in the tribe. So, you know, globalization has, you know, uh, the, I won't say underside, but that's the other face of globalization, globalization and localization. Will the nation states endure and survive? I'm a political scientist. Uh, I believe in multilateralism, but I also think nation states will survive. You look at the projects of multilateralism, uh, Europe, you find that the nation state is alive and well in Europe, but they also share certain common uh, European projects together, but the nation state is in fact very strong. And with this, new politics we talk of, a resurgence of nationalism. It's not just in Asia that you see nationalism. America, there's a kind of, America first is a new nationalism, you know, and every country has a country first. So nationalism is alive and well. Okay, and I have gone 15 minutes over time, Heng Chi. Okay, fine. Uh, so I have to wrap this up. I apologize for all of you whose questions I have not been able to take. They are good questions, uh, but we just don't have enough time. Uh, I, but I will take one last question, which is a very broad one, and it uh, for you, right? And this is a question by Mr. Lim Sui Kim. And the question is, what future and aspiration should we encourage for our grandchildren here in Singapore? That's probably a good note on which to end. What future aspirations? I will not presume to prescribe aspirations for the future grandchildren. For, you for know? Our grandchildren. For who? For our grandchildren. What future aspirations would we prescribe? I will not prescribe. What can, for, for, I will, what can we hope for for our grandchildren? 
Oh, sorry. What can we hope for for our grandchildren? I would like to say good things, but you know, I'm thinking of some of the climate change hazards that will arrive. You know, and uh, that's a difficult world. We will face a very difficult world. So, what can we hope for for our grandchildren that they will learn to work with one another? And work cooperatively, and I think uh, by doing so, they can enhance the uh, chances of working in a very difficult world. But you are going to face a very difficult world because uh, climate change hazards are so enormous, and we have to think about that. So to work together, regardless of race, language, or religion. You know, uh, and be tolerant. I think tolerance is very important. Okay, thank you, Hengchi. I think we have to stop the Q and A now, and back to the uh, host. Thank you, Mr. Bilahari. Thank you, Prof. Chan, for the interesting Q and A session. May I now invite IPS Director Janadas Devan to give the closing remarks? Director, please. Okay, I, it's very late, so I keep my remarks very brief. Uh, we've come to the close of Heng Chi's uh, lecture series. I would like to thank Heng Chi for delivering three excellent um, and wide-ranging lectures. She has worked um, to incorporate and discuss current developments from COVID-19, the US-China rivalry, and the recent general election. Um, I would just like to um, remind everyone that um, this is the first series of IPS uh, SR Northern Lectures to deliver to be delivered all over Facebook Live for obvious reasons. Um, they've broken our records in terms of attendance. Uh, she's the first of our fellows to have had close to 750 odd to 800 people listening to her at one time. Um, and she is also about the first, the, the first fellow whose lectures will be um, uh, broadcast on radio. Um, let me give you the times for that. I think it's, um, um, they will be broadcast, the three lectures will be broadcast next Friday, um, the 24th uh, to Sunday, the 26th of July, uh, after the 9 p.m. news on um, uh, CNA 938. So um, please, you know, tell your friends um, um, that, uh, that things, if they have missed these lectures, that they can always listen to it on the radio. So I don't want to keep all the rest of you um, on this for longer. It's thank you very much, Heng Chi, for your lectures and all, all of you here um, uh, who have listened to and participated in this series. Thank you very much and good night. Thank you. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your view on the event. Please click on the link on our Facebook comment box to submit your feedback. Uh, Professor Chan's lectures will be broadcast on radio. We hope you can listen to it and then we thank you all for attending this evening's lecture. Good night. <laughs>